Welcome to episode 26 of Fintech Insider, which has now been downloaded in over 120 countries and is regularly at the top of the charts in iTunes. So thanks guys for listening. I'm Chris Skinner and today I'm with the 11FS gang, David Breer, Jason Bates and Simon Taylor. Say hello team. Hello, hello team. Hello team. Good boys. We're recording from level 39 in London. And London, um, as you know, is at the heart of fintech. Hopefully it stays that way after Brexit, but we've covered that in previous episodes, so I'm not going to go there. Where I am going to go is on the beach, because I'm with my sandbox and a team of sandbox players here. Uh, with Matt Herbert, Director of Strategy and Digital at the British Bankers Association, even though he's an Antipodean. Hi there. Hello. Uh, Hadi Kabalan, who's the Managing Director at Aut- Autonomous for EMEA and the Americas. Hi. And Jean Vengrip, who's the CEO and co-founder of Tradle. Hi there. And Ed Maslavekas, who is the CEO and co-founder at Bud. Hi. So um, we're going to start with the news headlines, as usual. And uh, I think we'll begin with the meatiest of the subjects this week, which is the £5 note that uh, Mark Carney championed into the British consumers' pockets and purses and wallets. Um, And basically... Uh, it's a plastic note that's meant to be far more resilient than our previous paper notes, but it's caused a huge amount of controversy because apparently we're killing loads of animals to produce these notes because it has a trace of a thing called tallow, which is animal fat oil, in the production of the notes. And looking at the maths that actually is involved to produce uh, all the British banknotes in Britain, we've killed half a cow. Um, so this is really radical. The vegetarians hated it. They've signed a petition on change.org, over 100,000 signatures, which is pretty impressive considering ending the badger coal only got 63,000. Um, and the Bank of England has now decided they're going to try and do something about it and take out the animal fat involved in the production of our plastic banknotes. It's a bit of a ridiculous thing, I guess, but then we do have a few vegetarians and vegans in Britain and we have to defer to political correctness these days, don't we, guys? I don't know. It seems kind of kind of bizarre. We were talking about this earlier on. I'm I'm not entirely sure which part of the animal we're actually using to do it. But is it is it like with literally have we killed half a cow for this? <laughs> In total, for all the banknotes we produced. Yeah, I don't know. Seems like an overreaction to me. But two hundred thousand people, right? That seems like a, a big enough number that have got upset about it. What happened to the other half of the cow? Like, if we killed half a cow, is there just half a cow wandering around a field, like not able to fully stand up? No, no, that went into the production of the leather wallet, so we put the plastic notes in. So, wasn't there an image that you saw, Jason, of on a website? I think there was one of the articles that was covering this, and it was covering the new five-pound notes, and somebody was pulling a five-pound note out of a leather wallet, and it was just yeah, like. Yeah. <laughs> But the you do irony, know that, yeah. uh, that Sarah, our CMO, being vegetarian, is going to cut this entire segment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's going to going to really just get rid of this, aren't you, Sarah? I am. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. I guess it's one of those, um, a point towards modern democracy in action that the Bank of England mentioned this on Twitter. Suddenly there's yeah. this sort of Twitter storm. Everyone picks it up. But they were asked a question on Twitter directly from a vegetarian. Right. And then... They said, yes, there's a little bit, and then it went viral. And then, so 100,000 signatures where you say, you know, UK, the, shutting down the UK's domestic ivory trade only has 70,000. Yeah. You know, so again, it's one of these sort of moments where, you know, people are checking Twitter and suddenly go, you know, go mad. It, it's, it's interesting. 
Yeah. One of my favourite things on this story this week is the fact that it's caused a lot of people to go to the Bank of England website and find all kinds of strange things. So apparently in the year 2015, 5,617 banknotes were returned to the Bank of England that had been chewed or eaten. So one, I love that they're keeping track of that. And two, how do they know they were chewed or eaten? Like, how, how do you prove it was eaten? And how far were these notes digested? I think there's some strange things the Bank of England's been up to, but bless them. So the new notes are actually better in that the old notes, if you look at the studies, paper notes are regularly found to have lots of traces of cocaine and feces on them. Mm. They're actually disgusting. And so I'd much rather have a plastic note. But you know, you know, Chris, I don't think they're made that way. No. <laughs> <laughs> True. Although that would be interesting as well if, uh, you know, it's some byproduct of the... Uh, of the royal mint. The royal mint is minted. <laughs> 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 we find these banknotes in the pick and mix at, at uh, cinemas. Definitely. <laughs> there we go. Well, anyway, vegetarians, what's their beef? I don't get it. Oh. Um, so, on that note, we'll move along. Um, in that the UK has actually just approved a law that will come into force next year, which is titled the Investigatory Power Act, the IP Act. Internet Protocol Act, it could be, because it's basically saying that we can all have our data uh, monitored and accessed by the government to see what we're talking about. And the communication service providers have to retain a log of all the digital stuff we've used in the last year and make it accessible for government investigation on demand which um, some people call the Snoop Dogg law, or the snooping law, rather, because <laughs> um, it's basically allowing anybody in government to um, find out what we do on the internet. Um, it seems a bit over the top, really, but I guess in some ways after the Snowden incident in the US, it's just legitimising what we already know the government does. I mean, they are big brother, aren't they? I'd love to think that the FCA, who are actually one of the, the bodies that have access to this, could build uh, internet browsing history into the senior manager's regime. I think that would be hilarious. Can you imagine? And speaking of petitions, um, the petition to repeal the IP Act has already passed more than 140,000 signatures. So slightly more people care about privacy than banknotes with traces, trace elements of cow. But, you know, privacy is, is there to be given away, I guess. Uh, and I guess one of the byproducts of this is the uh, the massive uptake in VPNs now, because while uh, the the internet service provider you know has an obligation to uh, record a uh, where you sort of travel on the internet, they can't do that if you have a virtual private network, which is essentially a, a secure encrypted tunnel to some other place on the on the internet. So there's been a, a massive uptake and upswing in people buying uh, VPNs, which to some extent, you'd think that the people who uh, have something to hide, you know, have an easily accessible tool in order to, to hide that. Some of these departments that have got access, though, the Food Standards Agency, Food Standards Scotland, like, why do they need to spy on what I'm viewing on the internet? To like, find out whether you're eating any tallow. Uh, <laughs> that's it all along. It, it's just a bit too far, isn't it? Some of these agencies that have got access. Like, okay, I get the serious fraud office, but the Welsh Ambulance Services National Health Service Trust, the ambulance service can see everything um, I'm browsing. Well, there's an interesting dialogue there because um, we talk quite a bit on blockchain discussions around self-sovereign identity and the consumer owning their identity and not being able to actually have others access their identity except when they're given permission. Mm -hmm. And someone said to me, well, ambulance services need to access your identity because if you're unconscious in a hospital bed, then they need to know exactly what um, your, your history is, your medical history, and so therefore they have to be able to access that immediately. So that's a legitimate one, maybe. Ooh, interesting. <coughs> uh, I think there's a lot of debate um, 
was done during the FBI versus Apple case. And uh, we really need a technology solution that uh, wouldn't compromise privacy, but would provide uh, uh, intelligence uh, gathering services with an ability to, to uncover the data. And we don't have a technology solution today. And it's worth mentioning Gene that was talking there. Um, his company does privacy and identity solutions on uh, all things blockchain. And we'll be talking to Gene about those and many other things a little bit later today. What do you think? Of? Yeah, well, I, I feel like, you know, if you look at the, the list of people that have this data, right, that, that's a long list. Um, it feels like everyone in the dog wanted this access to this data. Uh, the more people have access to this data, the more likely you are to have a hack. Um, think about the amount of people that work in these organizations. You look at how the in, interbank system got hacked. It was a, somebody not being secure somewhere somewhere else, you know, and, and so, you know, the controls on this are going to be interesting. And obviously this is um, data that is, you know, super valuable. Um, it almost reminds me when the Snowden thing came out and they discovered that um, the Americans have been spying on Angela Merkel's communications that the German Secret Service went back to doing everything on typewriters. Because mm -hmm. you know, paper is much more secure than digital, isn't it, in terms of it being anonymous. I mean, you do wonder what, you know, at some point, if the browser companies uh, or the browser offerings start including VPN. And then that turns the telcos into even more of a dump pipe. Because and this is the way it's going to go. I mean, yeah. if we keep getting legislation that drives in this direction, you're going to keep getting consumer demand to go towards more privacy. And all they're doing is they're making it harder and harder to see this data. And then it just creates the pull and push effect and it won't achieve what they actually want to achieve. But in so doing, you'll find out a lot about people who can't, can't protect their privacy well and not a lot about the people who really want to hide from you. It's it's pointless. But I'm just wondering if the average Joe really is bothered about privacy anyway, because you know, look at what's out there on Facebook that people allow to be seen. If you look at, um, there was just a case this week around guys who are committing suicide ever been caught on web cameras doing dirty things in front of um, ladies you know and it's a case of people just don't realize that when you've got a webcam in front of you a laptop in front of you and you know a, a digital interface in front of you that you can be tracked traced and monitored well it was interesting there's a picture of mark zuckerberg that popped up on the internet about six months ago and um, i'm seeing nods from around the room and that one picture he had his uh, webcam with a piece of tape over it um, and that's because actually, and if you look at the terms and conditions in an awful lot of um, things that you sign up to, the likes of Facebook and Google can listen to you and watch you at all times. And then there are many jurisdictions in the world that can subpoena that data at their will. So yeah, it's it's and that not that a Samsung TVs as well, where mm -hmm. Samsung TVs are watching you in your lounges, you know. So well, I mean, I for one welcome Alexa and the Echo, my new you know personal <laughs> assistant that is obviously listening all the time. But wow. I mean, you know, amazing customer experience. And I think that's that's where we get to. People will, you know, mortgage give away their privacy for five extra seconds of convenience in general. I think there's a lot of sort of yeah. internet noise. There are a lot of people who will fight for privacy, but there's such a tiny proportion. The rest of the population, you know, just love the convenience way more than personal privacy. I think that's right. I think, you know, probably instead of saying, hey, Alexa, at, at some point it'll be the other way around. You'll say, stop, Alexa. <laughs> right, and leave me alone, Alexa. Yeah, yeah. so you'll have some some kind of. stop that some kind of functionality that says, "Okay, give me uh, privacy for ten minutes or something." <laughs> <laughs> Especially if your girlfriend's called Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> that would get seriously confusing. Um, there's an interesting um, stress test that took place this week in the UK, run by the Bank of England, that was 
severely looking at, in the worst case scenario, how bad our banks would be. And they found that RBS is still a complete basket case by the look of it. Dave, maybe you can take us through this one. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, pretty bad indictment of um, where RBS has got to really in terms of this. So, you know, obviously since all of the, uh, the problems in 08, uh, what are we you know, not really sort of moved on dramatically since that happened. So eight years later in terms of actually uh, moving forwards and now quite a heavy stress test, it, it should be uh, should be said in terms of the, I think they're referring to it as a doomsday scenario in terms of kind of where they're going. So we're seeing uh, housing prices dropping by 31%, GDP falling by 4%, UK employment rising for by 9.5%. So, you know, literally the idea that somebody be looking for a mortgage and not just building a bunker and moving into it type thing at that point <laughs> would be uh, would be quite interesting. But it's just continually bad news about RBS, really. Um, you know, the fact that, um, you know, Lloyd's, who, you know, were in a similar position at the time of an uh, 08 in terms of all the bailouts, but actually have moved themselves into a kind of such a healthy position from a you know this this type of perspective and actually RBS have not really moved themselves forwards. I, I think in the light they were two billion short of what they needed for doing it and the fact that they spent 1.6 billion sort of buggering around with Williams and Glynn is uh, not really sort of putting themselves in a decent position you know so uh, I think quite a, quite a sad one. Any latitude in terms of you know RBS and the Fed Goodman had got that global ambition and bought Avian AMRO and you know, had this toxic assets globally uh, you know there's a spaghetti structure of complexity that they've not managed to unwind. I think they've um, I think they've clearly sort of um, moved back from a geography perspective in terms of what they're doing but they don't seem to have significantly changed those cost structures in terms of actually where they are um, you know particularly around the I think this goes broader than than just the the kind of reaction to the tests in terms of what we're doing but the the kind of depth of what they can actually respond to from a infrastructure and an IT perspective in addition to the purely from a cash perspective and uh, uh, you know, we sort of referred to this before. I think if they were an animal, we probably would have put them down already. So uh, that said, their share price is up two and a half percent today, and over the past six months, it's up nearly a third. Um, their share price is doing phenomenally well since the uh, election of Trump. So I think there's something interesting here about banks are just a fair weather. You know, uh, fair weather. Oh yes, whatever it is, they're they're a fair weather stock in that they you know when the economic conditions are good or at least when there is deregulation and there is a Republican in the White House, banks seem to do well. Uh, and indeed, under Clinton and Bush, the you know the the stocks did extremely well because there was progressive deregulation. Uh, it seems like the the view is in the market that we're heading towards an era of deregulation under Trump, and that's having far more impact on their share prices than their ability to recapitalize. So the markets are looking for profit, not stability, which I think is an interesting signal um, of what the markets are looking for versus what regulators want. Um, and it could mean that you know we could just be creating a new crisis all over for us. I think that's probably got to be seen in the light of though it's the lowest that it's been since 2012. So it's got a lot of group to sort of climb up to, hasn't it? So since 2015, uh, so start of 2015, it's almost halved the share price in terms of where it's going. So oh, it's a dead cat bounce, don't get me wrong, but it's, a, <laughs> but it's a bounce nonetheless. And I think actually what will that do over six months if Trump does start announcing policies around deregulation? Um, you know, Post-Brexit, they, they all took a hit, but uh, you know, this is one to watch, definitely. I, I think there is a macro trend around deregulation versus stability. And actually, will the market prefer um, deregulation to stability? 
There's also an interesting uh, nuance to this in that um, RBS is the one that's unfortunately still flatlining, but um, Stanchart and Barclays mm. were also raised as questions in, in the severest scenario, mm. which is a bit surprising, really. Yeah, I think they made reference to in this though that they'd, they'd already actually put, because um, obviously the, these tests happened some time ago, didn't they? And actually the uh, the remedies that were required to be put in place by both Standard Charter and Barclays had already took place. Um, I think, didn't Barclays just scrape through with the sale of Barclays Africa in terms of actually the amount of money that they needed to hold? And I think the, the changes that Standard Charter needed to do have been put in place already. So, um, yeah. Worrying trend, though, I think it's. I wonder how much longer it will go on in terms of the next rounds and, uh, you know, really what the repercussions of this will actually be for RBS. But then, just to Simon's point, the, the, you know, banks are pro cyclical, and, you know, if you are entering a, 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 uh, an economic scenario, situation whereby you're going to have some inflation, you're going to have uh, the uh, long rates go up, uh, banks do well when you keep the short rate down and the long rate is up because they make that margin uh, and then they can rebuild profits uh, which is one of the things that's been lacking uh, and so those profits can go into the capital buffer and then and of course the, the Trump is is uh, talking about um, the Neil Kashkari plan which is you know I don't know if you remember him he 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 was he's also an ex-Goldman. You know, so Trump seems to have half his cabinet of ex-Goldman people. But said the guy from Goldman, former. <laughs> 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 but so he's you know he's he's uh, he's the governor of the the Fed uh, in 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 Minneapolis, and he's he's proposed that as long as certain uh, capitalization ratios are met by banks, that they would be exempt from Dodd Frank, and so the whole uh, separation of uh, of trading and and. Uh, and it and makes sense. Don't. I mean, if a bank is making enough profit to demonstrate they have the right capital ratio, um, then do you need a lot of regulation, or do they, or do they need, do you need them to prove they're stable? I think it's a fair yeah. question, and I can see why the markets reacted well to it. I'm just luxuriating this image of Donald Trump in Trump Tower in his golden suite, being surrounded by gold men. But um, <laughs> um, when looking at um, the UK markets in particular, though, we've got uh, a number of incumbent banks that are. You know, in fair weather banks, um, but we've got a whole load of new ones cropping up. Um, I think my latest count is there's over 40 new banks that have been launched in different aspects. One of which uh, I hadn't heard of before until this week called Masthaven. What's this bank all about, Jason? So, um, they're, while they're a new bank with a new banking license, they're not a new player. I mean, they've been around since 2004. Um, they've been in mortgages. They've been in lending. Um, and what interests me about this is one. Again, it's one of those new kind of banks that you haven't heard of. But secondly, they seem to be pursuing this model of savings bonds and lending. You know, it's classic maturity transformation stuff. Borrow some, you know, borrow money or take money from the, um, uh, you know, the end customer. Uh, tell, say that you'll give them a couple of percent interest over one, two, five years and then leverage that and turn it into mortgages or lending or bridge loans or anything else. So it's just one of those um, other banking models that's, um, uh, that's, that's kind of interesting. It's, uh, it's similar to Atom, I guess, the first products they launched. Again, business lending and uh, fixed-term savings bonds. So it's just a, a new model we're seeing around lenders who now, with a banking license, can do something with, you know, with deposits. It's quite interesting that everybody wants to start a bank with the letter M in their logo at the moment. What's that about? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think we're... like. 
you know, with 11FS, we're seeing this in Europe as well, that banking licenses just don't mean current accounts or business lending or SME banking. Um, there's a whole host of players from retailers, mobile network operators, existing lenders who see it as a way of actually being able to take deposits and do interesting things with them and, and having, you know, additional flexibility. So um, so they, they've uh, taken on uh, a new tech stack from DPR Consulting, who specialize again in this um, savings and lending space. They're aiming at, a, a I think they say, a, a digital approach with a human touch. So again, it seems a little bit like Oak North, that they're looking for people who maybe don't fit the spreadsheet, the traditional kind of mortgage model, but are still, you know, reasonably good bets. Because the, the language they use is very much uh, around sort of lending to people who might not, you know, get mortgages with the uh, with the big lenders. So I like it. I, you know, I think it's just the kind of thing that, um, that we want to see. I thought it was interesting this week that you know, we all attended the Future of Fintech conference run by the Telegraph newspaper. And one of the things that came out of that for me is that, um, you know, when you talk about open banking marketplaces, uh, which came up quite often, this is an example, as is Atom, Monzo, and many of the others, where you can very quickly, nimbly launch something new very cheaply, actually, compared to the incumbents. And a comment was made that what would be, um, in a large bank, a £30 million project is a £30,000 project for a, a nimble new startup. So I think we are going to see some pivotal changes taking place. Not quite 35,000, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so what, what, do you, nice. what do you see, Ed? Do you see, you know, Woodmast Haven as a... Um, you know, as a lender and a provider of savings bonds fit into the kind of platform you're building? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, with us, we very much are platform focused. So it's all about any product, any any suite of products, however you want to make it, build your own kind of financial world. Um, but, you know, we do, we spend a lot of time speaking to big banks at the moment um, and looking at how they're looking to deploy a marketplace, how that would work. The biggest problem with that is obviously you go back to this same model where banks are selling products again. And that's never really been very successful. Um, so, you know, looking at how a third party can help them do that um, in an agnostic way is, is what we're focused on. Um, but the banks are super interested. It's a, it's a way to make a better customer experience and, and kind of really take advantage of PSD2 instead of be taking advantage of. Um, and I stole that line from David, by the way. <laughs> For listeners, that was Ed from Bud, by the way. Their platform is all about um, how you can build a marketplace of banking and re-aggregate your whole financial life. Thank you. <laughs> what a great effort! Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought you know, if I was, I've listened to this podcast. I've listened to this podcast a few times, and I hear people speak, and I'm like, that was so and so from so and so, and I'm like, but my listeners probably don't know who that is. So, like, you got to know who Ed is. Like, Ed's Ed's from Bud. <laughs> that was Simon from Eleven. <laughs> Sponsored by that. That was crazy. We don't know who he is. The deposit, uh, obviously, having deposits that, that are locked in for a period of time mm-hmm. is a great luxury anytime you're, you're transforming in the financial industry yeah. from the one side to the other because that's obviously been the Achilles heel for companies like Lending Club for example as, long, as soon as there's you know, something that goes wrong then you know, your ability to tap the wholesale market dries up and that wholesale can, you know, all the way into yeah. hedge funds etc and so having the deposits is a massive advantage and gives you sort of that luxury, as it were, of, of being able to to transform in a way as you wish and create the products that you want without having the the, the fear and the worry that, that that might be the rug might be pulled up from under you. So that was Howdy from Autonomous. <laughs> <laughs> this is Chris from Eleven <laughs> <laughs>
sorry. Well, in general, what are the conditions that uh, uh, led to uh, consolidation of having in the UK very small amount of banks and uh, how they changed to enable a lot more banks to enter, enter the market? I often use a stat which is that in 1999, the big four UK banks had 69% of the deposit account marketplace, which went down to 63% by 2003, mainly because of the conversion of the old building societies into banks, which actually caused a lot of the crisis because Bradford and Bingley, Northern Rock, you know, they're all the ones that were the basket cases because they didn't know how the markets worked. And then um, in 2015, the figure was 77% with the big four in terms of deposit accounts. So they've gone from 69% up to 77%. I think we're going to see the same thing eventually here with all these challenges and new startups eventually being acquired and merged into the big, large existing banks eventually. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> most of them are acquired. I think that's the thing. And actually, it's, a, it's almost a symptom of the problems with most of the banks' technology stacks, isn't it? That actually, most of them are, have acquired all of these different divisions just by buying other companies. Success has given them money and money has made them buy, buy the companies and... Uh, you know, therefore you end up with five or six in there and that's it. You know? So most banks are Frankenstein is what you're saying. They are. They're yeah. uh, yeah. pieced together buying other companies that were good at what they did and um, that, so they were hoovered up. But I think uh, apart from a couple of a couple of anomalies, it would be ex- it would be very expensive to buy a VC-backed, you know, startup bank because VCs, are, you know, are looking for, you know, the billion-dollar company. They want the, the big wins, not the slight wins. So this whole, you know, someone could sweep in and uh, uh, and pick up one of the new challenges cheaply. I'm not sh- not sure that if you know if the bank that you would want to buy is the bank that's being successful, and the bank that's being successful, you know, may not want to really sell. So I think that there's um, there's some interesting questions as to how that works. But you know, BBVA came in and took what? Atom. Yeah, how much of Atom? I did say there were a couple of anomalies. I think for banks, the, the, the ability to capture deposits is actually key because you wouldn't, you know, as if you were... The, 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 the mishmash of uh, systems that there are in existing banks is, is so terrible. You would never, ever design a bank this way. So a bank that is actually more or less out-of-the-box newly built in terms of IT... Is a is a much much more efficient beast. But what it is is that it's it's getting the psychology of the consumer to deposit cash that they don't care about specifically what kind of return they get on it. That's your advantage as an incumbent. That's kind of your only advantage yeah. as an incumbent. So that's like apathy from customers is the legacy bank's biggest sort of uh, advantage. It is. Well, that's so worrying. That also the fact that um, you know your wage goes into a bank account. That's a heck of a network effect. That that's where my wage goes. But I do think it's interesting. I, every time I look at you, Hadi, I think Goldman. I'm sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but we were talking to... Um, there was a press release recently about Goldman launching their own sort of startup bank. So they've built an entirely new platform. And I think that's pretty interesting that there you've got a and probably the one bank that's demonstrated historically it kind of gets technology that is actually launching a consumer bank Marcus, that, yeah. yeah did they buy one? Uh, no, they no, they, yeah. what they did was they bought the the uh, deposit taking uh, part of GE Bank and then they put the front end which is much more technologically enabled so they're they're trying to avoid the Achilles heel by having the big deposit based on one one side and, and going technologically on the, the so, consumer so that on the other. So is more pretty. It, isn't, <laughs> isn't this even more worrying than going back to the RBS stories to a certain degree? Because actually RBS is sort of saying it'll, it'll be okay when we can 
you know, take savings and lend some more money to people. Don't worry, you know, we'll get there. And then we've got, what, 28 new banks coming into the, to the market who are going to be offering far advanced capabilities for our advanced services and uh, sweeping out those customers from those legacy organizations that, you know, are relying on apathy. So um, maybe it won't be quite. But I think, I think the thing that surprises me is that we've not heard of a new first direct play, you know, the, the big bank creating something off the side. Because if core transformation and the whole sort of being able to um, to tear apart those legacy systems is so difficult, then your options are you acquire someone or you you know you buy something that's that's out there or you do it yourself in some way. And I guess we've you know Chris, I don't know if you've if you've heard through the grapevine of any of those kinds of plays in action, but I certainly haven't. No. What about what about BDV? Mm-hmm. Are they, uh, is BBVA trying so they the bought Holvi, Simple, Simple, have a good stake in Atom. So yes, have that kind of acquisition, but you know, uh, but not, uh, not doing it yourself. But, but arguably, First Direct didn't either. First Direct really was just an, an exercising, painting a red thing black and uh, and, and marketing it differently. And it's not new back. You know, and actually, um, exactly, it's not the new black. Okay. And uh, so, so really, they didn't do that. There's not many big organisations that have made that jump. You know. M-Bank really are the only ones that massively sort of spring to mind in terms of making that significant sort of scale of change. Um, but even there, they didn't change their core system. They didn't, but they're, they're, I think the fundamental part of that was that they changed their culture, was, didn't they? they and, and, and I think that's the, that's the killer piece. You know, your, your point around a £35,000 project costing £35 million, that's down to culture. That's not down to the IT set up in most of these organisations. It's also down to the inflexibility of what's you know, installed. Because, um, and this came up again in the Future of Finance conference because there was a question around: Won't the legacy of ten years ago that we're trying to deal with today be the same ten years from now with the blockchain and everything else that we're dealing with today? And I think the answer is completely different. That ten years ago and before, everything was highly capital intensive, highly resource intensive. It was high cost and high project risk, and a lot of time involved, which is why you had to have a huge amount of ROI and investment and analysis before you did anything. Whereas now you can pivot really quickly and it's far more fluid. It's, I was going to say, it, no, I was going to say exactly the same thing that that, that question uh, shows a lack of understanding of modern technology. Exactly. That actually, that the tightly coupled legacy of yesteryear has given way to the most highly flexible. Um, reconfigurable microservices based you know uh, API driven organization because whether it's the organization structure the IT you know the people who work there um, there is no BAU operations anymore you know in in a in a massively um, developed rapidly developing uh, marketplace of of fintech um, you have to create the organization that's capable of reinventing itself. I think the organization is actually kind of creating it itself. So the risk and control functions and the legal and procurement functions, it's been interesting to see how they're looking to not just be the you know no person, although the risk aversion people, but it's actually how they can start enabling the business. And it's quite, quite cool to see this the um, innovation and enthusiasm infecting uh, all these different areas of banking as opposed to just being this uh, separate innovation yeah, unit. Yeah, if you work in a control team in a bank, frankly, getting to design product and be a part of a journey is far better than looking at the arse end of a spreadsheet all day. Um, <laughs> and I think that's what they want. And Chris, you blogged a couple of weeks ago about um, the idea of building in obsolescence to your core systems. And I mentioned this in a, in a conference 
that I went to after the, the Telegraph one. And the person who was leading that said, you know, it was, it was an older chap. And he said, but how do you plan for that? Like, how do you plan five years out for building in obsolescence? And I'm like, you, you don't get it. Like, <laughs> Google changes half of their code every day was something I, I picked up from, yeah. from one of the folks that used to work there. And they were like, yeah, but how do you plan for that? And it's, well, it's cultural. You have, technology allows you to do that now. And, and I know there will be listeners going, no, we could never do that. But the reality is, yes, you can. That is the new normal and you have to get there. That's the reason why you've got to have a digital foundation and then layer stuff on top rather than having the old physical structures and trying to adapt them. But, it, but it's like they've never bought fruit. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, just like, you know, buy some fruit, leave it for a week. It's not good anymore. You know, buy a core cool system, implement it, do nothing for 50 years, and then it's not good anymore, right? You know, it's kind of the same logic, just uh, just apply it in everyday life. Well, we've now got fruit and meat on the show, so we're going to move along and talk about um, the Royal Mint, which, um, you know, has killed half a cow to produce 329 million five-pound notes. But they're also issuing digital gold. Yeah, I thought this was quite an interesting one. So the the you know a this sounds like years... a scam. Let me just say that. Do you know what? I, 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 was, I was thinking the exact same thing. So the Royal Mint are going to basically digitise via uh, putting a store on a blockchain to control who owns the element of this gold. So there's going to be gold bars in a place you can't get into and that nobody can see that they say you own, and it's going to be stored like the blockchain bit aside. Is this not just sort of a scam? Well, so th- think about how gold trading works today, right? So there's there's either that really old, slow way of doing it that they do today, where I, I can go and look at the piece of gold, or I'm an institutional investor and I've got my serial number and I can trade the piece of paper, or I have an exchange-traded fund where somebody already owns a lot of gold and I buy that fund. It's like adopting pandas, isn't it? You kind of uh, have you not seen that where you can adopt a panda and they send you a little certificate oh, yes, and this okay. is the photo of it and here you go but you're adopting a gold brick. So. Yeah, no, I, I want my bit of panda. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then the panda's not alive anymore. Can we make notes? <laughs> <of that>? <laughs> <laughs> but but I think the thing with this is so there's a few problems with the way the gold market works today. Problem number one is you either buy the funds. Or you buy it this really old-fashioned way that the funds actually buy it. What the Mint are saying is, well, the the people that are buying gold from us now can only buy when we're open 9 to 5, so they they can't buy 24-7. They're missing out on on having a 24-7 market. And it's highly expensive, and it's highly inaccurate, and there are all kinds of manual processes. So if the Royal Mint makes this a lot more efficient, they think they can pass on um, lower costs... Um, new products and can expand their global footprint so more people will buy gold and gold will become more fungible. Now, how does a blockchain help with that? Well, blockchains are by their nature digital, so they're 24-7. You could have probably done this with cloud technology. The beautiful thing about a blockchain, though, is that they have this concept of tokenization like Bitcoin. So what they're saying is a token, much like Visa uses tokens to do your payments, does actually represent the legal gold. So if you have that token, it's the same as having the gold in your hand legally. Now, that's a bit of a stretch because a lot of people like having gold in their hands instead of having a digital token on their phone. 
but legally it's the same thing and they believe that institutional investors will buy into it. It might be legally the same thing, but it's not yeah, it's not the same thing. It's like owning a house you can never go to. You know, like like this is this is like it is a scam. This is a this is like timeshares in the nineties. Like you don't own the gold. Say that the Bank of England's treasurer has signed your banknote saying, I promise to pay the bearer. Yeah. This is just a digital version of I promise to pay the bearer. If yeah. I cannot Scrooge McDuck that, that gold, yeah. I do not own that gold, okay? Show me the money. No, but the interesting point is what is the recourse to the Royal Mint? Because, yeah. you know, actually, if, because if there is recourse, I would much rather have that than an ETF. Because with a gold ETF, you don't even know if they have allocated gold in a vault somewhere. They might be trying to, to match the return in some way. Uh, this is actually better than gold that you've bought from anyone now. This is actually more like owning gold than you could ever get. So you, as, you, you trust the Royal Mint more. But that goes back to the yes. essence of money markets generally. Because, for example, the Medicis in the, the Renaissance Italy went bankrupt because our king had said that he promised to pay them back when he borrowed money off them, and he didn't. But if you have a token that proves it, and lots of people can see that you have that token, there is this that visibility. That's what happened there. There's a company called BitGold in Canada, now called Gold Money. Mm -hmm. I think they were one of the fastest growing fintechs two or three years ago. Um, And that was at the same time as there was a whole bunch of currency issues in Brazil. Um, So they've been doing something kind of similar. Um, And the idea being you you have these vaults where you store gold, and when you transact on your card, then it converts into that currency. Gold bugs are going to absolutely love this because um, gold trading and Bitcoin trading have been very closely aligned for a number of years. So I think gold bugs are going to go absolutely nuts for it. And it's interesting that there's a company called Paxos formerly ITBIT, based out of the States, that's doing exactly the same. I think there's a real trend here, and people keep asking me the question, what's going to be the first um, blockchain product that really breaks through and becomes mass market? I, I, I thought for a while it might be gold. Now, now I'm coming more round to that. There's a good chance it could be gold. But, now, but the CME group and the Royal Mint, so how fast are they going to move? But there's a good question there. How will they show liquidity? Will they make it open to any exchange? or will they? Do you have to come back to the Royal Mint for liquidity? I think they don't know. Uh, and I think if they do, and how open it is, yeah. actually, can you build products on mm-hmm. top of it? War against that, all, that gold and other things. Wouldn't it be lovely if you could, if it was a platform? But is this also not just another confidence game, rather than the inherent value of a gold, you know, of a, a literally a gold metal that we've somehow, because of his, you know, historical precedent, said, oh well, this is the value and this is what we'll, you know, go and hide in. Is it? Is that not a little odd? It, well, is, Still? Are you more confident or less confident than you would be with an ETF? I think that's the question. It's not, are you more confident with a lump of gold in your hand? Because you could never have a lump of gold anyway unless you were Scrooge McDuck. Like, and, <laughs> and chances are you're not. So you, you would have bought an ETF. That was a bit shady, as Hadi was saying. You don't really know whether how it was valued. Is Does it really represent the gold that somebody's actually holding on my behalf? You just don't know. With this, at least you do know there's a piece of gold there that the Royal Mint says there. Which is, which is a lot better than what we have today. So I think it is an improvement. Let's move on from a historical president to a future president, Donald Trump. And, um, oh, oh. Bing, <laughs> um, who's in his gold suite with his gold men, surrounded by real gold, not digital gold. Um, and apparently Apple, Google, Amazon and their cohorts are lobbying for him to focus on fintech. Why? So. There's a group called Financial Innovation Now, FIN, so that sounds very final, um, which includes PayPal and Intuit. They're asking the Trump administration to appoint regulators and promote policies that will bolster the use of financial technology as it gains popularity and prominence. Interesting who's asking for it. This is people that have 
said many times publicly, the reason we're not getting into fintech is because there's just too much regulation. We don't think we can make any money in it. Now they're asking, they see it, uh, an administration that might make its modus operandi getting rid of regulation. And they start lobbying immediately for getting rid of that regulation. If I'm a bank, I would look at this very, very seriously because for a long time, I think the banks have worried about um, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Alibaba, you know, Tencent, all of these companies that could really come into these markets but didn't because of regulation. Maybe that changes in the US now. It changed in China with Alibaba, right? Alibaba has a lot of... Um... Uh, what kind of uh, money market funds? Yeah, Alibaba is one of the largest fintech companies in the world. I mean, they, they started out looking a lot like eBay meets Amazon, and now they are a bank without a banking license. They, they do lending, they do all kinds of wealth that, management, and that, financials, huge. They're my blog today, actually, and um, they, they made a little video called, uh, uh, about what is a, a, um, a Alipay, and it shows it's actually, it's not even a, f- a financial network. I mean, it, it does lots of financial things, um, not, not, not just payments, but savings investments, but it's, it's a social financial network. And they've got the social factor as the key part of the stickiness of what they're doing in there. So it's there's really something interesting. I really like in this article um, that says the um, Finn asked Trump to appoint regulators, including a special treasury undersecretary for technology. I've never seen this before. Um, that value technology um, and companies who will seek to promote innovation as a means to foster competition in financial services. The new Treasury Undersecretary would be charged with spearheading a national fintech strategy to ensure America is the best country to create companies to grow uh, and grow jobs developing financial technologies. This starts to sound a lot like what the UK has been up to, what Singapore has been doing. Um, there are a lot of geographies now that, that have this kind of strategy. Um, but it's, again, consider who's pushing for this. I think, you know, who, who benefits from it? But, but, uh, and, you know, the US is just far behind in terms of financial technology. Look at ACH, you look at the kind of state-by-state stuff, community banks. Um, you know, we've just come back from doing some work in Johannesburg. And as you drive from the sort of airport to the hotel, there are just crazy adverts of really interesting sort of fintech yeah. players yeah. starting, you know, in, in, yeah, in South Africa. I'm, I'm regularly saying that Africa, China, India are doing far more innovative things in America and Europe. And in, in America in particular, I think they really are in a straitjacket because the regulatory stranglehold to keep the incumbent system as it is, is immense. And a good example was... Um, at the White House earlier this year, there was a convention talking about um, you know, fintech. And uh, one of the key things um, that came up is, why is there not a single new American digital bank? You know, we've got 28 plus. Um, you could say GS Bank is one, but that's another di- discussion because um, it's launched by an incumbent bank, um, Goldman Sachs. But um, the reason is, uh, and this is the answer that I concluded, uh, to start a new bank in the US, you've got to talk to about 200 different federal bodies before you get through the door. Yeah, I mean, that's ridiculous. It is insane, but I wonder if the, um, the gold men, um, the Goldman um, folks that are advising Trump, would actually lobby against the ability you know, for fintech to come in and start competing with the bigger banks here. Where will deregulation happen first and who will be the most effective lobbyists? That's really interesting. I think it's recently. interesting that there's Google and Amazon and, yeah. and Apple behind this because... You know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned uh, the South Africa because it, you know when when we when we sit in in countries that have uh, stable um, stores of value and means of exchange in the developed world currencies, you forget that in many parts of the world you might have uh, populations that actually prefer what could be a say a Google cryptocurrency, for example, over their own domestic currency. 
as a store of value and a means of exchange, or Apple or you know Samsung or whoever. So you know that's that's it's it's another way. If you think about the, the sort of um, the global reach in commerce yeah. of these uh, of, of the the mega cap tech companies, uh, that doesn't extend financially, but it could. Yeah, although that's the, um, the big challenge for the banks at the moment is this patchwork of regulation in different jurisdictions, and uh, you know even if even if a company's got the technology and and the reach across different jurisdictions, the, the cost associated with and being compliant um, for the same activity in different countries is, um, I think it slows down the activity. So if you go to Venezuela and say, you know, would you like your domestic currency, would you like, uh, you know, a Google coin? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm pretty sure they would say... Well, Bitcoin's doing pretty well in Venezuela at the moment <laughs> exactly. for exactly that reason. Yeah. Um, on that note, it's time to move along from our news and uh, say thank you to our sponsors before we get into the regulatory sandwich discussion. Thanks, guys. Let's be honest. Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Welcome back. And um, this week's show is focusing on the uh, UK regulators' regulatory sandbox which is a program announced a year or so ago um, to encourage startup companies to apply to work with the regulator to get themselves licensed and to market far faster than they ever could before. Um, I went to an FCA presentation on this and they actually said that they thought they could get a new startup company um, with a light license given to them within two months under the Sandbox program, which is incredibly quick. And it's all part of Project Innovate, which was announced a couple of years ago to get leadership in the UK financial markets by encouraging fintech startups to start up here rather than in Singapore or Dubai or somewhere else. Um, So it's been interesting because um, during the summer they ran an application process uh, and had 69 companies apply, of which 24 have successfully gained access to the sandbox to play of which three are in the room. So I'd like to uh, have Autonomous, um, Bud um, and Tradle introduce themselves. Maybe Gene, you start as you um, last on the alphabetical list with the T. Right. Sure. Uh, so Tradle is doing KYC on blockchain and uh, therefore it's um, very fitting for us to work with the FCA to uh, kind of bend the rules on how fintechs and the banks can actually play on the market and decrease this inefficiency, massive inefficiency of uh, regulatory uh, uh, framework that exists today. And uh, so the um, uh, idea that uh, we applied to FCA with is uh, kind of two streams. One stream is completely digitized onboarding for the banks. And then use that digital record and the provenance of the verifications, uh, how it was verified by the financial institution uh, to transfer it to another to a third party, to another bank, to another financial institution, and even non-financial institutions. So digital onboarding and portability are two streams that we, we, we've been accepted uh, with to the FCA. Thanks, Gene. And uh, for those who follow my blog in August, you were one of my standout startups in that area. So there's a little bit of write-up there. Clearly um, the FCA read that and thought... Exactly. Yeah, so if, if Chris writes them, they must be good. Yep. Um, and <laughs> then we have Hadi, who's uh, running Autonomous. What's Autonomous? And tell us a bit more about your so background. We, we, um, uh, we represent private company shares uh, on blockchain uh, as smart contracts. And, and really our mission is to remove the friction and paperwork from anything 
to do with your company governance of your cap table, of your board, of transferring shares, and so on. And so we we are uh, so we're undertaking a test as part of uh, the sandbox to uh, uh, extend that functionality to help companies that are on the platform to be able to fundraise directly from investors. Um, it, you know, given that uh, we you know we're able to. to to have those shares move and be issued and transact on blockchain rails for private companies, it's uh, I want to say we don't touch money. So you know we uh, you have with your cryptographic signature you verify that the transaction is valid just as you would in the analog world. Uh, and so and everything we do is is API linked into company's house. Uh, and so you have a live cap table that's constantly updated every time you transfer shares, issue shares. Anytime you have director changes or anything like that, and so really, what's part of the sandbox? It's just to, to test the functionality of being able to fundraise on the platform. So, and I really wanted Autonomous to be on here because I, I like that idea because um, I'm aware of a company um, who's not in this room um, who uh, shall remain nameless, um, mm-hmm. but I'm aware of a company that recently messed up their cap table. So if you're starting a company and you're trying to bring in new directors and investors and you say, hang on, I need to go spend three months with lawyers whilst I reincorporate and figure out all my paperwork and unpick stuff, that can be really painful. And actually starting a company is pretty paper-based and manual anyway. Um, There are some things out there that help you, but having an online platform really does help. And I think that's that's an interesting idea. Yeah. And then um, third but not least, we have Ed from Bud, which uh, we've had Bud on the show before, but for those who haven't listened to the previous podcasts, tell us a bit about Bud. Yeah, so Bud essentially is one platform where you can use any financial service. Um, and where that came from was kind of looking historically at, there used to be this great thing called a bank manager. And you used to have this guy that you trusted, in, or girl, or lady, um, to help you manage your finances, looked at your entire financial world and could say, this is the right mortgage for you. This is the right product. And there was trust there. Um, we had sort of the failure of uni- universal banking, um, kind of sales-driven targets in, uh, within banks that that changed that, um, sort of got rid of the trust. Um, what we really want to do is enable you to really take kind of control of the financial world by using multiple products in one place, uh, learn about what you're using, um, and then from there we can help sort of algorithmically find the right tools or the right things for you to be doing. Similar to if anyone uses Spotify or Amazon, these things can start to sort of use data to be predictive and, and start to help you um, sort of optimize that. Um, our test for the FCA is looking at how we start to learn about consumers and help match the right products for their needs. And that's really um, sort of part of what we're doing with the Sandbox is testing um, that core platform. Um, the current platform that's out is, is around management. The, the, the bit going forward is really starting to assist people um, with, with their financial world. So that's what we're testing. Thanks, Ed. And um, we've got Matt here as well, who will bring in some perspectives around what the bank's view is of this project. But before I get into that, I just wanted to find out a little bit more around how the sandbox works in practice in terms of what's going on. I mean, is it actually that the FCA is working with you, with their teams, bringing in people to help you, giving you um, counselling and you know, brainstorming? I mean, how hands-on is it? Uh, first of all, the program just started, right? So we, uh, it was announced, what, two weeks ago? Right, but we've been working with FCA for quite a long time to get accepted. Mm-hmm. And that was a very, very difficult and rigorous process. So we had many discussions with them on what we are proposing, what, what changes we're bringing to the market, and they were validating uh, whether it was true or not and challenging them. 
I know, but animals went through the very similar difficult. And I, we, I, I, mean, I found them very, very proactive yeah. in, and actually in their guidance and their help. Obviously, you have to go through everything that you would normally if you were getting licensed. But the fact that they have uh, essentially who is your case officer or your you know, internal representative who is sort of guiding you through and, uh, and and connecting you to the right people and giving you some guidance on the approach and, and the direction, I, I found actually quite helpful. And I wonder why or what criteria they had for selecting you guys when they rejected 45 other companies and you know, what was the criteria for success, well, do you think? I can answer that. So uh, they basically told us, uh, show us how you can bring innovation without breaking the rules, but by bending the rules. And we'll give you the, uh, the waiver to bend those rules. And yeah. we fit into that. So the sandbox, I think, is, is much more of a sort of relationship. So whereas um, traditionally it's kind of you submit something and then they come back to you, this is an open dialogue, an open conversation. Yeah. Um, so having your case handler say, you know, this is what we're thinking about doing, this is, um, you know, how, how we're trying to get to the end goal to help the consumer, and then to come back and forth and, and work with you on that, that's where I think it's a step change. So for us, we didn't use any consultants to do any of our regulation. Um, you know, we'd never done anything like this before, but you know, it, it was the opportunity to really work with the FCA to learn the regulation, um, sort of teach ourselves, read the handbooks, but really enable us to actually work together so they understand really what the technology we're doing is trying to achieve rather than go through another third party. And um, I think that, that creates a better relationship. I really think it could be the best way to, to I be agree. regulated. I think, I think at, at this point, having had the, the, the number and depth of conversations that we've had with the FCA, I think they could probably, you know, other than anyone internal to our company, they would be the next best people to describe what we do, and certainly ahead of necessarily what what maybe a lawyer would be able to, because they've just allocated so much time. So they really um, understand the, the technology. They do take their time to to do that. Yeah. Um, I think you know to your question as to how you know why. I mean, I I don't know what we certainly. We don't, we don't bend the rules, we're certainly within the rules, but I think what they probably didn't want the, the, the nth um, you know, currency conversion company. Uh, and so I, they probably want some kind of diversity of innovation, um, whether it's KYC, whether it's the, the front end of, of, of banking offers, whether it's uh, you know, private uh, company uh, uh, fundraising, etc. So I think there's a diversity of innovation there that, that they if I were them, I probably would. That's what I would be seeking. So, I'm sort of so, so as Justine said, you know, you, it's just starting. So, what do you actually get once you're in? So, we, what we hope to get, because we we haven't gone through the process yet, is uh, there is a very difficult part uh, in the process that we are establishing, is the ability to to create portability of KYC verifications. This is not allowed today on the market. And uh, therefore, every financial institution is re-verifying the records uh, over and over again. And uh, if you talk to the corporates, uh, this is where the pain is, is most extreme. Uh, they might have uh, 20 to 50 uh, banking relationships, and when they're even repapering their business, they are uh, creating new legal entities, they need to re -go, <laughs> redo that same KYC process again. And the uh, treasurers are telling us that they're spending 50% of their time on, on the KYC now, if they're doing this process of repapering. So this is insane, right? They're not doing their business, they're working on regulation. So how do we improve that? So, we're, so what we are saying is that by digitization of KYC records, which today is a very manual process, 
uh, Goldman Sachs said that, um, I think in May, uh, that it's about 77% manual today, uh, so which uh, creates an extreme hurdle rate. So the banks cannot accept clients that do not make them money. And therefore, they cannot accept in the SME segment, uh, smaller SMEs. In the merchant segment, they cannot accept uh, mom, and pop, mom and pop shops. In the uh, individual uh, retail space, they cannot accept uh, customers with a, just prepaid cards. So they, they're kind of uh, demarketing themselves from, from that market. They cannot accept those customers. So how do we make that process a lot less costly and a lot more digital, right? And the digital experience for the customers. So this is... This is what we're trying to do. And without FCA, it's almost impossible to do it uh, fully because we need to create a liability framework that will allow portability of some, some things that are not portable today. And without their guidance, without uh, actually doing workshops together with them and defining that framework, it's not possible. There's so much interesting there, Gene. Um, I think the, the fact that small companies struggle to get bank accounts because banks have very manual and very costly processes, which mean that small companies don't make sense as a business case for a bank anymore, right. means that now there is now specific legislation and regulation around ensuring that banks are fair to small companies, which increases the cost of giving bank accounts to small companies, which means they're even less likely to get it. And as we know, the biggest cost for any bank is KYC an AML. So, you know, you talked a little bit about the liability framework and some of the nuance there, but I think the, the key point here is anything that can reduce the manual processing in, in KYC has to be a good thing. But if you're tinkering with how KYC works, I mean, that is the key way that you prevent any kind of fraud, any kind of risk in financial services. It's the protection that banks have. So tinkering with it, we can see why people would be be very scared of doing it. But the idea of banks being able to actually close that funding gap for small businesses, I think is a really good thing. But people don't link that to identity very often. They link it more to banks are being mean and not banks have high costs and bad processes. But I, I guess I'm interested in what happens when this goes wrong. So what happens when... Uh, NFC is interested in that as exactly. well. Exactly. Right? Hey, <laughs> yes, I've delivered with the FCA. I've you know, got used to that way of thinking. And it's that, you know, all the unhappy paths and where they lead. So the, uh, the, uh, this is an interesting question. So uh, today, when each bank is redoing their KYC process, it's actually not uh, creating more resilience on the market. So what we are reducing the amount of verifications that need to be done by co-validating the verifications that are done by other banks and creating, therefore, a more resilient system at a much lower cost. Yeah, I think so, on that, Jason, with um, Optomos and Bud, you know, it's almost like an FCA approved stamp seal of approval now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, the, the FCA doesn't really, it's not, they're endorsing right. you in any way. It is not, no, specifically not. What it is, is basically you, the big part of the sandbox is as a company, you propose a test. The test is, we, we believe that by implementing this product, um, it will have this outcome and you test against it in a scientific way. You, you collect data on, on the, basically you get restricted permissions for the test. So whether that's a certain amount of users or what your restricted are, to, and then you, they will find what the outcome of the test is and say, yes, this worked, it didn't work. So in, in a startup world and in a regulation world, it's a very quick way to test fail, which is really what you want to do with all new products, um, is to find out if it works and what doesn't work. Um, so that, that's how it works in practical terms. If, you, if it works, then hopefully you get your permissions and you can go and start mm -hmm. using that product. 
But I guess that there's different tests from a startup perspective and a regulator. You know, the regulator wants to look at negative outcomes and how this might, you know, mm-hmm. affect end customers. Yeah. Startups want to acquire customers and, you know, bring in cash. So how do those two outcomes fit together within a test? I, mean, I think they, 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 they test for, for both or, or they provide the environment to test for both in the sense that there are... It, think of it the, essentially there are two layers there's the sort of full regulation layer so you go through all the questions that you would if you were getting a full license under whatever you wanted to be licensed as so all the things you know what happens if you you know the plane crash and your whole team is on it and you all disappear and then what happens to your system and all of that uh, at, 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 at you know sort of a worst case scenario type of level to what would happen to consumers uh, if you do touch consumers or what would happen to end clients if you touch end clients uh, were your system to go offline um, all the way to okay give us you know five metrics that you want to test for and and how will you know whether you've been successful or not so it's it's nice there's this kind of a spectrum of from the you know as I was saying sort of scientific test fail all the way to you know how what how do we think of you in relation to what would happen if to consumers or to your clients you know if if your system went down i love that there is some science in there though i love that that it's actually testing for outcomes because previously it was like think of everything up front and then we'll give you a license and then if you go wrong we'll hit you this is this is a much more of a like think of everything up front you still have to go through that process but actually collect data and prove that it's right and if something does go wrong in this little period then fine you've got time to adjust it but limit the amount of people that would be impacted and we'll watch and we'll help you so it's kind of more hand-holding there's less risk to you as an organization but actually there's really a scientific method being applied here which i don't think i've seen in regulation before regulation is normally these are the rules and if you fail we'll hit you i think that's quite a nice development i think the criticality here and this is interesting from the bank's perspective is that um you know the regulator is trying to create more competition in financial markets and to create more choice for the consumer and to make it more robust and resilient and fast to get to market Whereas from the banker's perspective, I've heard quite a few of the incumbents saying, uh, well, why are the you know, startups getting lighter regulation than we have to deal with? Um, Matt, have you heard that sort of complaint? Yeah, well, not, in, not specifically in relation to the sandbox, or, or if I have heard questions about it, it's generally, can, can we as banks um, engage in it and, and what's it going to do for us and help us to innovate? Um, there are a couple of banks who are either in it themselves or collaborating. I think HSBC and, and Lloyd's are in there. Um, and, and really, they're using it as an opportunity to give confidence to their risk and compliance function that they can test out something new or innovative in a live environment. So it's much more of a partnership. It, it, it is, it is. And, and um, I, I think for, for banks, they're looking for um, some different support from the FCA than fintech startups who are, who are going through the sandbox. Uh, and, and that's something that I think is helpful to take from this first cohort anyway and, and look to calibrate what's happening there. Um, but, but certainly I've heard the, the, the banks finding it difficult at times to, to innovate themselves. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, just to go back to that point about the help with, you know, uh, thinking about regulation and understanding regulation, you know, if I trans- sort of transpose myself and if I were inside a large financial institution that had all the necessary regulations anyway, I would need the sandbox because I would, I would already be regulated and I'd be able to do my test. Uh, if I was so minded to be innovative to lay out a test and then do it and then figure out the outcome internally, 
you're already regulated. So with the advantage to us is that we can do this test, you know, within a, a, a regulated environment, which is what's being provided to us. Um, is there a big part of that, though, about sort of almost the, the, the you know, a significant amount of the number of companies that have come into the sandbox are uh, sort of distributed ledger uh, technologies in terms of what we're at? So, so actually, the you know the FCA are sort of almost using this as a a way of learning while we do to a certain degree. Right. Um, and despite the fact that I guess a lot of the things that you guys do is is within regulation, the technologies that you're using to to sort of complete the use cases that you're doing are quite different to what they've seen before. So, um, I, I guess um, you know you're going to be getting all of the fun questions about uh, what is this and how does it work, as well as the use case questions, right? Uh, to Chris's point, actually, um, we're making banks more competitive with fintechs. It's quite opposite, actually, because by decreasing this hurdle rate and the ability to, to onboard customers within minutes instead of within days or months uh, uh, makes them actually more competitive. So, uh, but it, it actually reminds me of, um, uh, there were, I heard a, an interview with Joel per Perlman of uh, Oak North, and uh, Oak North were, were the first bank that... Uh, in the UK that moved over to Amazon Web Services to cloud-based core systems. Mm -hmm. And he said that they'd worked, you know, directly with the FCA. This was, you know, pre-Sandbox. Mm -hmm. And that actually by moving their systems on, the FCA had learned a lot about what needed to be put in there. And actually, Oak North had been asked to help them sort of formulate the questions around uh, cloud-based infrastructure. So I love this idea that actually, rather than regulating for some hypothetical concerns and hypothetical business models, it's looking for people who want to do specific yeah. things, working with them closely, that then, and as we've seen with cloud computing, can be moved across the industry. So I think, it's, uh, I think people could look at this and say, well, hold on, you guys are being given you know, the, um, a leg up. You know, it's uh, it's something new, but actually, you could view it to say, well, once we've got uh, the ability to to do KYC and ML once and share it, it won't only be you in the market, but it could be right. a variety of other players exactly. and the big yeah. banks and everyone else. So, so I guess you're all good, you know, top of the league sort of examples of your new areas of business that are trailblazing some way that actually a lot of other players could come into when the regulation's there. Again, building on this, and I'd be interested in your reactions, is that um, you know, the Monetary Authority of Singapore has um, produced a number of regulatory uh, papers that are saying, here's our advisory notes on cloud, you know, in terms of how you can use cloud as a financial institution, what's acceptable, what's not, not acceptable. And it's almost like um, the regulators, because of the recognizing the technology and finance m momentum, are uh, becoming technology regulators themselves. They, they kind of get it now, don't they? Uh, why not take it even further and say, why regulate and not to become a software company, a technology company yeah. that actually implements regulations in the form of code? And that's what the Austrian Central Bank is doing. I mean, the Austrian Central Bank now feeds directly into investment banks in Austria and says, don't report data to us. We want to access your data and we'll find out from your data what we want to know. Yeah, this is exactly the point what uh, uh, blockchain can address. Yeah. It can create new separation of data and transfer of data in between parties. For example, a bank and the regulator 
regulators, uh, we're talking to regulators around the world, and they're saying, we don't want actually to get data from the banks because we don't want to secure the data, we don't want to protect the data, we don't want to store the data, and all other things. But we want the assurance that the data was collected correctly, it was accurate, it was verified according to the norms that we are putting in the market. And the blockchain technology actually allows you to start, finally start doing that. I think we need more reg tech generally, right? There's, there's yes. just a, uh, the, I, I was talking to somebody earlier who said they've spent the last year looking for reg tech companies and they found 126 and they've they spent a year doing it. Wow. And, and there's a lot of technologies that you know, are fintech suppliers to banks potentially and people tend to look at um, fintech as just, oh, well, they're here to compete with me and I, you know, everybody in fintech is against me and this is a new type of competitor and it's all very unfair. But actually, if this is helping me reduce the cost of my reporting, and actually I can just use this technology to prove that my reporting's been done right, and here's the data if you need it, Mr. Regulator, and you can see what's happening inside my database when you need it, there's, that would be nice, but then there's a huge education gap for the regulator to actually get there. So somebody needs to build it and show it to the regulator and, and bring them on that journey. I don't know if... Yeah, that's, that's one of the reasons Sandbox was set up, was essentially this, this cost of innovating right like that's massive so the first person to do peer-to-peer -peer cost them loads and you know a whole bunch of legal um, and then they got it through and it worked and then they've proven the case but you know the capital to do that's already been used and so the second person that comes up it can do it much cheaper and then they have an advantage when they get to market because their cap tables better and they get better access to money uh, and that, that was one of the reasons it was set up so being able to sort of identify new things and get them through very quickly and test in a pragmatic sense um, and cheaply and obviously you know we were working it didn't cost us thousands and thousands it would have cost us with consultants to not understand our product um, and that's really one of the advantages and I think that's really what will drive innovation uh, going forward. Uh, I do hope that's one of the outputs coming out of the sandbox as well because for me the education and knowledge sharing space around these new technologies what they're all about, the, the risks associated with them. Um, that's, that's not a competitive space at the beginning because you kind of, you need the regulator to move at the same pace as every different unit within a bank or you know within the fintech companies in order to get that comfort to adopt the technology. And then once everyone's got to that right level of, of comfort, you can start competing with new products and services and procuring that. Um, so, so I totally agree that education space would um, would promote innovation at pace. NFC is doing a great job. For example, uh, we're a U.S. company, but we're operating mostly over here. Why? Because we went through a startup bootcamp fintech program over here, and FCA came to us, and they talked to us, and they tried to understand our product, and we had a continuous dialogue since then. For a year until we were accepted into the into the uh, sandbox. And what I that's very similar to what you see in Singapore and Hong Kong as well. The regulator comes to you as a fintech company, yeah. and and can you imagine seeing this in the US? Uh, I think you know that that's less likely, and I think that is a competitive advantage that the UK has had. But now with really small, nimble jurisdictions like Hong Kong and Singapore doing it, can you keep that advantage? Well, yeah, I mean, just building on that, I'll be interested in. Um, Hadi's view because you've been a little bit quiet, um, but also Gene and, and Ed in terms of um, Brexit. You know, we've had discussions about Brexit and saying that Berlin and Dublin um, are looking for opportunities, as are Amsterdam and um, and definitely Singapore is probably really aggressively trying to attract startups to move there. So, how do you see London um, now? I mean, I think uh, I think actually it's a it's more or less a geopolitical imperative. 
for any country to try to lead in financial technologies in the digital world. And, and I don't know, you know, I can't say that this is specifically uh, pushing the, the one arm of the government versus another, but uh, you can certainly see how in a, a deployment of the kind of infrastructure that we're seeing deployed, uh, whether it's distributed ledger or other electronic financial infrastructure, and the rapidity at which this is being deployed. And if you think about, you know, the, uh, the legal system of the UK, right? So UK, UK, England and Wales common law is widely used across the world in so many different economic uh, functions. And one of the things that I think if you, if, if London is to remain at the forefront of business and finance, you know, into the next hundred years, you do need to be able to shift that into the digital world. So from that perspective, I think it is very, very commendable that uh, the regulators are being very flexibly minded as to how to approach not only understanding, but incorporating new financial technologies for the financial system of the UK. I'm pretty sure that, you know, other countries are going to try and do the same. It's a question of you know, who gets what part of the pie first. And, and, and because, you know, with the economics of scale, you know, it very frequently is whoever gets there first gets most of the pie. It's interesting that, yeah, people don't often think that uh, the rule of law and how law is done can be a competitive advantage yeah. for, a, for a given economy. But it actually is. And, and uh, that point about uh, digitizing that competitive advantage being really crucial to the ongoing success, I think is something that has been lost in the debate about what do we do post-Brexit. There is a real key action that the UK fintech panel could look to take and say, you know, across all of Tech UK, how do we start making the, the rule of law that we have digitally accessible? And I think being able to incorporate a company uh, in the UK legally, uh, digitally, is one step towards that. So I can see how the FCA sandbox could really help people do that. But how do you broaden that beyond finance? I think that's a fantastic point. I was amused yesterday, actually. We were at a conference in France, and uh, one of the speakers said that the French regulators are really innovating because now you can actually make your license application in, in English. <laughs> <laughs> Sign of the times. Uh, one point uh, that you made about uh, regulatory reporting. So we need to move away from the regulatory reporting that is created either by the company uh, financial institution themselves or by the RECTAC that is creating a much better reporting than they are doing right now to full-time electronic supervision. Right, and this is if if regulators can do that and impose the rules that are executed on the bank side. That would be the the innovation in RevTech. I love that itself. term, full-time electronic supervision. That sounds just wonderful. It does right. sound without, like... Without we're, surveillance. Yeah. Without <laughs> surveillance, yeah. But, I mean, if, if the regulator could see a subset of everything that was happening in the bank and only what they needed to see, rather than end of day, this system from the 1980s churns out a report and spits it at the regulator, the regulator wipes their face and goes, what was that? Um, which is what's happening today. Um, Richard Crook, who was on our show a couple of weeks ago from RBS, described the regulator as being like the man with two clocks. So he's got one report from one person, one report from another person, and they both say different times. The man with two clocks can't tell the time, and that's kind of where the regulator is. Whereas if they can see what's going on, they can kind of see the mess. But do they understand that mess? I was, um, I was, I was going to say exactly, I was going to sort of take at that point. 
that actually is not a technology problem. Yeah. You know, a, very little in this and very little in, in fintech is about the technology. Mm-hmm. It's about the use of it. It's about the process, the strategy, the how it's used, the where it's used. And so, you know, reg tech, bizarrely, isn't about the tech. Mm-hmm. It's about the whole, you know, the process, the organization, the skills you have, right. how that all works. Um, and, and actually, if you could fix, if not you could fix it, if you could update it for the, for the technology and the, the data streams, everything that you could get now, mm-hmm. then obviously you're, you're at another, another level of scale or you're at a, you know, you're a very different place. Yeah, so it's really interesting about headline about the information protection law that's just come in that snoops on all these citizens. Um, you know, the regulator wants the same thing with the banks, yeah. basically. But they already have it. Who, yeah. Whose culture are we moving forward here, though? So, you know, to my to my point around the technologies, are we moving the banks' cultures forward in terms of doing this, or is this really the FCA's attempt to significantly digitise themselves and move themselves forward? You know, it kind of works on all parts, doesn't it? Mm. There's a there's a you know, I put my old hat on at my last job at Salesforce. The FCA systems on Salesforce. You know, we use it for our our reporting. We use a lot of that um, CRM functionality. That can all be tied together very easily. So to Jason's point, it's really not a technology issue mm-hmm. at all. I mean, you know, when I was at Salesforce, I would have loved to make that marriage that everyone in, in the UK fintech scene has to use the same system as the FCA. I mean, it's a good system. It would work. But, you know, it, that, that could be done very easily. On the other hand, it is a technology yeah. issue because until now, we didn't have a way to prove that some piece of code running on somebody else's machine actually runs correctly mm-hmm. uh, and prove the data that went into it was actually the data that can be trusted. We never had this technology before. Of course, yeah. yeah. So, so there's a degree of just status quo bias, which I suppose kind of comes back to the changing the legacy culture rather than you know, legacy um, technology. But it's it's driving that um, ability within an organisation, whether it's a regulator or a bank, to to change the way that it's being done um, and to enable, uh, I, I suppose, failure um, in, in the right environments um, so that activities like reg tech and regulatory reporting which would benefit you know, everyone involved can actually uh, develop rather than just staying with the uh, processes the way it's already been done. I think there's a lot of it where it's knowing what's possible with technology and I think this is the point yeah, that was coming. Point, yes. it, it's not can is there some shiny new thing it's actually you can do these things and you probably could have done for the last 15 years but this is just a different way of thinking about it and it's that mindset well, change. I'd extend, well, that, mindset. I'd extend that that it's not about what's possible but actually what the outcomes could be. Mm-hmm. You know, what's the bit not the business case and what's the regulatory case? In what ways does implementing the this technology in different way of doing things improve the situation? Mm-hmm. And I think this is part of the problem that we, you know, eleven FS seeing banks, that the people who understand technology think technology and think about the best outcomes. The people who think about business think about business. But rarely do you have someone with who who could have a take the background of technological you know, possibilities, and then apply it to some kind of business outcome. It's and like, equally, yeah. It's like banks need a personal trainer to help them get fit for the digital age. <laughs> <laughs> but do we, um, and I guess this is probably not a question for you guys who are in it, because it's probably a reasonably loaded one, so uh, put your fingers in your ears at this, this point uh, in terms of the conversation. But so for the guys from uh, 11FS, what do you think the FCA's stake in this actually is? So, you know, given the sort of leadership position that, that the FCA have taken globally with regards to, you know, putting the UK on the map and, you know, since the, the was it the EY study that was kind of launched in Downing Street, uh, you know, putting, putting us ahead, yeah. do, is there a, I guess, a, 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 
unneeded pressure on the FCA to make everything that comes through it successful. But it goes back two years ago, before we had the Brexit vote, before Theresa May became Prime Minister. And it's basically George Osborne and the Treasury um, saying that they wanted fintech leadership to be maintained in London because it had grown under the nurturing of... Um, actually, uh, Boris Johnson was quite significant in the role of advocating UK fintech along with UK Treasury. Um, so the Mayor of London's office, the UK Treasury, um, were putting pressure on the Bank of England um, post the crisis, uh, along with the FCA, to create and nurture leadership in technology and finance and support the innovation culture around London in fintech. Um, I don't know what's going on now in terms of I don't know who's going to take the leadership role. We talked earlier about Tech City UK and Eileen Burbridge. Is that going to be the future of UK fintech and, and FCA? Um, you know, I don't quite know where it all fits now. So there's, uh, they have a mandate, I think, does the FCA. There's a mandate to create competition that comes from HM Treasury. But if you look at where HM Treasury got that policy from, there was actually a report, and I'll try and find the name of the report, from early 2015, um, where Government Office for Science did it. I think it was called FinTech Futures. And in that, they actually recommended the creation of a sandbox. And the reason this uh, came about is because Sir Mark Walport, who leads the Government Office for Science, comes from a medicine background. Mm -hmm. So he's very used to this idea of, of kind of having staged and clinical trials. And they actually called it a clinical trial methodology. And from that idea that he inserted into FinTech Futures, later that year it became Treasury Policy. Now we've seen the FCA implement it. So it's interesting how a report can actually turn into policy that can turn into things that really affect startups. But just take a step further, because Andrew Bailey's leading the FCA now, coming from the PRA. So they've got new leadership in the FCA. Um, You've got a new government that's uh, taken out a lot of the bodies that were there before and replacing the new bodies. I heard an amazing statistic, which I have no idea if it's true, um, about uh, after a US election when there's a change of, of uh, leadership, 98% of the people in the White House are, are told to leave. Wow. You know, which the, the discontinuity of that approach is incredible, if true. And that's what I'm, I'm getting at here, that the FCA had very strong mandate mm before the Brexit vote. I don't know what the mandate is now in terms of where it's going. So what's really interesting about the UK is the consistency of the civil service. So the civil service doesn't operate like that. The no. civil service, I mean, if you, yes, minister is, is a classic example <laughs> yeah. of this. We, we do have a, a civil service that rightly or wrongly does maintain a lot of consistency throughout regimes. But still, that sort of the FCA moving from a you guys are way too friendly with the banks to you really need to get your big stick and to start, you know, being a policeman to this thing. And, oh, hold on, now we're moving out of Europe. Uh, we need to be really friendly because we need to, you know, grow fintech. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see if that, that yeah. sort of change. And, and also think about what David Cameron was dealing with, which is the global financial crisis, RBS, Lloyd's. And that was one set of issues that led to let's create far more competition, stimulate fintech, support the community mm. to what we're dealing with now, which is we're leaving Europe and it's a completely different agenda. In terms of the practical approach, uh, there is no assumption that uh, we are leaving Europe. Uh, it is the, the approach that, 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 um, that I feel that they're taking and that we've been guided to is that we just don't know when and how and therefore, you know, you uh, you seek regulation under a status quo type of structure, and then uh, if and when and how that's you know that evolves, then we would uh, then look at things like you know the, the EU passporting and other stuff. But at, at this point in time, 
at least on a practical level, I don't know philosophically, but on a practical level, they're not taking a view yeah. towards us anyway. No. Yeah, um, this is about the mindset actually. The, um, all this uh, discussion about the blockchain actually creates a mindset that the change is in the air, that change is possible, that you can make, that you can make a difference today something that five years ago was not possible. And this kind of mindset is, is we are, we're seeing in the UK government post-Brexit. Uh, we need to do more. We need to change more. We need to improve more. We need to connect with the rest of the world more. And we need to help fintechs more. And we feel that. I think that's it. I think mm -hmm. there, the desire for change is a really big motivator. And the, maybe there is the possibility of all the change. On that note, um, I think we've covered the FCA regulators' handbooks in quite a lot of detail. I really thank Matt, Hadi, Jean and Ed for joining us today and talking about uh, what's going on in that area. Um, I also should say thanks to the team, David, Simon and Jason. So uh, thanks, team. Thanks, Chris. As it's the 1st of December, all I'm going to say is that uh, when you sing the 12 days of Christmas, please replace the middle bit with five Goldman bankers. Uh, and thanks again to our sponsors and if you like what you heard subscribe to the podcast review us on iTunes and keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter bye for now